In the opening decades of the 20th century, there was a great interest in seances and mediums. One of the largest spiritualist organisations in the world, the Spiritualist National Union, was founded in the United Kingdom in 1901, and what followed was widespread engagement in spiritual practices, both regularly at church services and inside people's homes, as groups of family members and friends came together to conduct private seances known as home circles. The search for an afterlife only escalated in the shadow of the suffering brought about by the Great War. Death was palpable in people's everyday lives, and as their faith in the traditional teachings of the church decayed, spiritualism offered to many both emotional comfort and answers to fundamental questions about the very nature of life and death. The counter to spiritualism's increase in popularity came in the form of its skeptics. Regarded in his time as an enemy of spiritualism, Harry Price was a very candid critic of what he described as the pandemonium of many pseudo-spiritualist seances run by rogues for profit. Just as there were many people desperate to contact their loved ones beyond the veil, there were many people desperate to lighten their wallets, by selling access to alleged mediums and concocting fraudulent phenomena within a seance. Notorious for their strict conditions, including sitting in complete darkness, the prohibition of movement without permission, and the supposed necessity of distracting music and chatter, it could be said that the seance room is a ripe environment for the inception of deception. In 1920, Price's interest in stage magic and paranormal phenomena led him to join the Society for Psychical Research, an organisation that was, and indeed remains, concerned with trying to uncover fraud in mediums. Despite not being a trained scientist, he was admired for the scientific rigour and control which he brought to the seance room, with his expertise being sought by many working in the field. By the time of his death in 1948, some of Price's most famous cases included his investigations of Borley Rectory, of the physical mediums Rudy and Willie Schneider, and of the Battersea Poltergeist. Perhaps his most remarkable case, however, is much less known. For Price, the story began on the morning of the 8th of December 1937, when he received a phone call from a lady claiming to be able to guarantee a ghost. There was, she explained, a family seance held every Wednesday evening at a particular London residence, during which a little girl spirit always materialised. The lady on the phone wished to invite Price to attend one of these seances, and was certain that, despite his scepticism, after attending he would be convinced as to the reality of the manifestation. It was a bold claim, one which Price could hardly ignore. And yet, the peculiarities of the case were apparent even before he accepted the invitation. By now a seasoned investigator, Price anticipated that there would be conditions that he would have to agree to if he were to be allowed to observe the seance. And yet, during his phone call with the lady, he was genuinely astonished by the relative simplicity of her conditions. He was asked not to reveal the identities of any of the sitters, or the location of the seance was instructed not to bring light into the seance room, and was told not to speak or touch the materialisation without permission, and was not to do anything or make any experiment without the sitter's consent. He was, however, allowed to write an account of the seance, and was even invited, should he accept the other conditions, to have full control of the seance room and the sitters up to the beginning of the seance. 
This was highly unusual, as was the lady's offer for him to be able to search the entire house, from top to bottom, including the ceiling of all windows and doors before the seance began. Anonymity was the lady's main request. The seances, she stressed, were akin to a sacred communion for the sitters, with the mother of the little girl who was said to manifest being terrified that her girl might be frightened away if the situation was mishandled. Intrigued, Price consented to these simple conditions, and so, a week later, on Wednesday the 15th of December, he journeyed alone to the London suburb where the seance was to be held, uncertain as to what, if anything, he was about to experience. He was greeted by his hosts, the lady who had phoned him, referred to as Mrs. X in Price's writings, her husband, Mr. X, and their 17-year-old daughter, Miss X. The seance was to take place in the drawing room of their home, a building which Price dedicates a significant amount of description to in the report which he later wrote on the case. The X family lived in a large, double-fronted detached house in a good class road, and it was in their dining room that he ate with them and learned more of the circumstances that had led to his arrival. Rosalie, he was told, was the little girl who was said to materialize at their seances. Her mother, referred to as Madame Z by Price, was also to attend the seance. Described by his hosts as a French widow who lost her daughter at the tender age of six, some sixteen years previous, Madame Z had met Mr. and Mrs. X through the church. It was in the spring of 1925 that Madame Z had supposedly first experienced contact with her dead child, when, in the middle of the night, she was awakened by the sound of Rosalie crying for her. This continued for some time, until finally, the mother was able to perceive the dim outline of her child in the darkness. Then, one night, she put her arm out of bed, and her hand was clasped by that of her little girl. Upon learning her unearthly tale of woe, Mr. and Mrs. X are said to have offered their home to the widow for the purpose of conducting seances, in the hopes of encouraging visits from Rosalie. Their attempts, the exes told Price, were successful. In the spring of 1929, after six months of trying, Rosalie materialized without warning and made her presence known by touching her mother's hand. After that, the spirit child appeared regularly, and had continued to do so across the years each Wednesday evening. Sometimes she would speak, and it was even said that the sitters had been able to introduce limited light into the room, by means of ordinary cheap hand mirrors, the glass being covered with luminous paint, so that she was visible. It was a sensational story, and one that Price was, at the time of hearing it, no doubt eager to disprove. After supper, Madame Z, the mother of Rosalie, arrived, as did another who was to sit in the seance that evening, a man whom Price described as a cheerful young fellow whom I will call Jim. Price suggested that his presence in the circle was due more to his interest in Mr. and Mrs. X's daughter than in Rosalie. With all the sitters now present, Price was invited to begin his search of the house, a task which he appears to have embraced with all the strictness befitting his reputation. Taken to every room, he proceeded to lock each window, fastening them shut with tape, which he initialed across the join, so that any tampering would be immediately obvious to him. The doors were screwed shut, and likewise taped and initialed. The seance room is said to have received even firmer treatment. Furniture, including a large settee and a long mahogany sideboard with eight drawers, was moved. 
Four large Persian rugs were lifted and the floorboards inspected. Every drawer was emptied and Price even described turning the settee upside down, treading on the loose cushions and punching the canvas and webbing beneath to make the springs creak. When he was content with the room, Price turned his attention to the sitters. He was able to search the men, getting them to turn out their pockets and being able to run his hands over their clothes. Writing that he could not very well search the three ladies, he compromised by sitting between Mrs. X and Madame Z, with Miss X, without him requesting it, supposedly pulling up her skirt to reveal that she was wearing tight-fitting dark knickers, some sort of gymnasium clothes from a health and beauty class that she had attended earlier in the evening. Price was thus quite convinced that she had nothing concealed on her person. After that, the sitters sat in their chairs, arranged in a circle in the middle of the room. Before the lights were switched off, Price sprinkled starch powder in front of the door and chimney. Should anyone enter the room through these portals during the seance, they would have created a disturbance in the powder for Price to see afterwards. Writing later, he stated that a mouse could not have entered that room undetected. Price writes that the seance began at 9.10pm. After 20 minutes of light chatter, the atmosphere in the room is said to have changed. Mr. X got up and, stumbling through the dark, turned on the radio in the room. In the dim illumination cast by the wireless's station panel, Price could see the sitters and noticed that Madame Z was crying. After five minutes of listening to the radio, Mr. X turned it off and returned to his seat. All were asked to remain quiet. Then, after a little while, Madame Z spoke out. Whispering softly, she called out the name of her child. This was repeated at intervals for about 20 minutes, with both Madame Z and Miss X sobbing quietly as Rosalie was called for. Soon after the clock struck 10, Price described hearing Madame Z give a choking sob, after which she said something about my darling. Rosalie, Mrs. X whispered to Price, had arrived. Describing that moment, Price wrote that he, too, realised that there was something quite close to him. Despite neither hearing nor seeing anything, the sensation was an olfactory one. He could smell something that was not there previously. At his side, Madame Z continued to cry, and, as far as he could tell, was touching the spirit child that had seemingly materialised. Price wrote, The next sound I heard was a sort of shuffling of feet on my left at the same moment as something slightly touched the back of my left hand, which was resting on my knee. It felt soft and a little warm. Aware of the conditions to which he had agreed, he did not attempt to feel what had touched him and instead sat very still. Meanwhile, Madame Z continued crying for her daughter. After a few minutes, Mrs. X asked Madame Z if Price may have permission to touch the materialization. She consented, and so Price stretched out his left arm in search of whatever had touched his hand. To his amazement, his hand supposedly came in contact with what he described as the nude figure of a little girl aged about six years. Her flesh, he claimed, felt warm, although not so warm as one would expect to find normal human flesh. He could distinctly hear her breathing, and when he placed his hand over her chest, he could feel respiratory movements. Conducting a physical examination, he took her pulse, could feel her hair, and each of her limbs. He estimated her height to be about 3 feet 7 inches. Price was astonished. 
Holding the spirit child's hands, he asked Mr. X, Miss X and Jim to speak, so as to confirm that they were still seated in their chairs. They did as he asked, and with the two older women seated next to him, Price was satisfied that no one had moved from their seats. What happened next, it is claimed, was even more remarkable. With Mrs. X's assistance, Price was able to illuminate the materialization that stood before him. Using the luminous plaques described earlier, he and Mrs. X directed the fluorescent glow up over the figure, from her feet to her head. Now illuminated, Price was shocked to behold a beautiful child who would have graced any nursery in the land. Her features were classical, and she looked older than her alleged years. Her face appeared very pale in the fluorescent light. The manifestation of Rosalie, Price wrote, looked as a normal child would. With permission, Price was able to question the child. He was told that it was unlikely that she would speak that night, but even so he asked questions which he described as being those one should ask any other little girl who had come from some strange place. He asked Rosalie about where she lived, and whether or not there were any other children there. He asked her if she had any toys, or any animal pets. She did not reply, and simply stared, seemingly not understanding what he was asking. To close, he asked her, Rosalie, do you love your mummy? At this, the child's face is said to have lit up, with her lisping, yes. After that, the child was de-illuminated, and within the next fifteen minutes, Rosalie was gone. Price claimed that he neither heard nor felt anything of her leaving. It was eleven o'clock, and the seance was over. Price was then invited to make any additional searches that he liked, which he proceeded to do. Everything was as it had been before, as was the rest of the house. All his seals were intact, with there being no sign that anyone had entered or moved about the house during the seance. And so, just before midnight, Harry Price left the house where the spirit of Rosalie had seemingly materialised from thin air, puzzled and eager to write his report. Within two hours, he was able to do so, and was unable to fathom how, if at all, he had been fooled. As far as he was concerned, no actress in the world could simulate Madame Z's poignant emotion, and thus exempted her, at least, from the presentation of fraud. If the others had been involved in the creation of a hoax, he could think of no way that they could have done it. The case was remarkable, perplexing, and entirely unlike any other seance he had attended. Not merely were there no hymns, singing or hand-holding, as was common in other spiritualist circles of the time, there was, apparently, no medium. What exactly had he experienced? Price would later describe that night as the most amazing seance that even I have ever experienced. Yet, in January of 1939, when he shared his experience with an audience at the Ghost Club in London, he was met with astonishment and scepticism. Here was a man they had come to accept as an arch-unmasker of mediumistic shenanigans, telling them that he might have witnessed a genuine spiritual materialization. Price's friend and rival, Eric Dingwall, a fellow paranormal researcher dubbed the skeptical inquirer by the press, was one of many to respond in disbelief. After hearing about Price's speech in the press, Dingwall sent him a rather sarcastic letter, stating that it was very odd that there were no details divulged about the people involved in this so-called miracle. 
Dingwall even added his own sardonic story to the letter, supposedly told to him by one of the most eminent lawyers in the provinces, about a seance at which he was present, no details, of course, where a white horse materialised and walked around the circle. Jokingly, he added, I will suggest to him that your circle should meet his, and that we should be treated to the first materialised Lady Godiva. Needless to say, the reception was one of incredulity. Price knew he needed more evidence before he could more properly present the case of Rosalie, and so he pursued the exes in an attempt to allow further research. This, however, did not happen. And so, in 1939, when he was due to release a book titled 50 Years of Psychical Research, he was reluctant to include the Rosalie case. His editor, however, persuaded him to include it in the book. It was never my intention, Price stated in a letter to a newspaper, to include the chapter about Rosalie in the book, though Mr. Potter of Longmans thought it should go in. Today, it is Price's account included in that book which serves as our primary source for what happened that evening. Despite his continued efforts, Price never was able to arrange a second sitting. Madame Z went back to France, and war broke up the Rosalie Circle. When he died, aged 67, in 1948, his investigation into the Rosalie case was still incomplete. Years after his death, Eric Dingwall took up the mantle of investigating the Rosalie manifestation. In keeping with his original disbelief, his line of inquiry was dismissive. Not believing a spirit child had manifest, and certain that had the seance occurred, Price, as well respected as he was, could not have been duped, he argued for the possibility that Price had fabricated the entire account for the sake of a good story to fill his book. Dingwall's evidence can be said to be unsatisfying, and based upon inconsistencies discovered in Price's letters from the time. Unconvinced by Dingwall's broad-stroke dismissal, future researchers have sought to uncover more about the Rosalie case. With limited evidence, however, speculation was often the only course of investigation. Then, in 1966, David Cohen, a paranormal researcher and admirer of Harry Price's work, received a peculiar letter that purported to explain everything. The writer opens by stating that they are always amused by the speculation surrounding the Rosalie materialization. They go on to explain that they are in a rather privileged position, for they are now the only living person who knows the whole truth about the seances held in our house 30 years ago. Shockingly, the letter's writer claims to be Miss X, the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. X, the people who hosted Harry Price all those years ago. In the course of her correspondence, she explains that the whole situation was a rather elaborate hoax, played on Price and a French widow, the Madame Z of Price's report. The letter writer claims that far from being 17 years old at the time, as Price wrote, she had instead been 11. She details how her father had lost money speculating on the stock market, and had received a loan from a wealthy French widow who was in mourning for her daughter. When they could not pay her back, her father invented an elaborate ruse that appealed to Madame Z's spiritualist inclinations. He claimed that his wife, Mrs. X, was a medium who could materialise Rosalie. Here, the ghost game started, 
and as a young girl, Miss X claims to have played the part of Rosalie to help her parents. When the French widow began to get suspicious of their seances and demanded verification, Harry Price, a renowned investigator, was brought into their private circle. On the night that Price observed, Miss X claimed that her 11-year-old self was pretending to be a young woman by using cosmetics, high heels, and a padded dress. Then, in the middle of the seance, she, without Price hearing her, moved to a corner of the room, undressed, changed her makeup, and proceeded to play the part of six-year-old Rosalie for Price to see and touch. The letter and its author explained everything, even how Miss X was able to announce her presence from her seat when Price was holding Rosalie's hands. It was simple, Miss X claimed. Her mother took off her rings and reached across Price to impersonate her 11-year-old daughter's six-year-old hands, whilst Miss X temporarily returned to her seat. All without Price realizing, of course. Afterwards, the letter writer continues, they kept Price at arm's length. And in 1939, after they were able to pay the French widow back and end the whole affair, the war served as a convenient way to dismiss any further involvement. The letter ends with the writer signing as, Yours sincerely, Rosalie. Needless to say, the claims which the letter makes are incredible, both in terms of the proposed magnitude of the hoax and the unbelievable details it presents. As such, it has generated as much skepticism over the years as Price's original account. How a seasoned investigator that reported being able to hear everyone's breathing in the room failed to notice such antics is extraordinary. Not to mention the accusation that Price was unable to tell the difference between a six-year-old child, a prepubescent eleven-year-old girl, and a young woman capable of attracting the attention of the young fellow Jim. Understandably, it is difficult to be convinced by the letter. That said, the letter does yield some interesting information which the modern investigator and author Paul Adams has been able to use. For many years, Adams has extensively researched Harry Price's work and has written a comprehensive and highly investigative book about the Rosalie case. In it, he presents a compelling theory that could begin to explain the happening. Investigating Price's archives, one particular piece of correspondence drew attention. Dated the 13th of December, 1937, it was Price's letter accepting Mrs. X's original invitation to attend the Rosalie seance. However, rather than being addressed to the fictitious Mrs. X, it was addressed to a Mrs. Mortimer. And so, the Mortimer name became a fresh lead for investigators looking to uncover the truth of the Rosalie case. By examining the 1939 National Register, dating two years after the seance, Adams was able to find a viable candidate for the Mortimer family at 28 Cadogan Square, London. The family consisted of Halliburton Mortimer, a stockbroker, his wife Dorothy, and their daughter, Joan, a woman who was, at the time, in her early thirties. By cross-referencing with other public records, Adams was able to confirm that they had lived there since 1926. The Mortimer family was affluent, with the description of the house being similar to the one given by Harry Price in his report. Seemingly, they were a match for the ex-family, with the discrepancies in the house and the family's profile being attributed by Adams to Price's desire to conceal their identities, as he had promised. Many of the inconsistencies are, however, striking, perhaps none more so than the differing profiles of Miss X. 
Price presented her as a 17-year-old young woman. Adams, based on his research, suggests that she may have been in her early 30s at the time. The letter writer presented a third reality, an 11-year-old girl. Why such differences? Perhaps Adams' argument may appear unconvincing, and yet, when he had a sample of Joan Mortimer's handwriting professionally analysed and compared with that used to pen the Rosalie letter, the result was astonishing. It is probable the report stated that they are one and the same individual. So why would Joan have written the confessional Rosalie letter? Adams theorises that it was because she feared the investigators were getting too close to their true identities, and wanted to throw them off the trail by further distorting her age, and lying even about being the only remaining member of the family, for indeed, at the time of the letter being sent, her mother, Mrs. X, was still alive. Putting the confusions of the inconsistencies to one side, Adams can be said to make a good case for the Cadogan house being the one to which Price travelled that evening. Citing his experience as an architectural draftsman who has worked with many Victorian properties in London, Adams notes the peculiarly large size of the drawing room used for the seance which Price described in his report. Considering it to be uncommon, Adams was surprised that its proportions roughly matched the one in the Cadogan house. Something which caught his attention, looking at modern-day plans of the property, was the existence of a hidden cupboard in that room. Such a cupboard, he argues, could have concealed an accomplice who might, in place of a thirty-something-year-old Joan, have pretended to be Rosalie. This does not, however, explain why Joan would have lied about her involvement in the scheme. Neither does it address the seemingly genuine emotions of Madame Z, and how she might have been duped into believing someone other than her beloved child was Rosalie. Is it realistic to say a mother would forget the face of her dead daughter? Unless, of course, she too was an actress. But then, if that is so, to what gain? The case is undeniably riddled with confusion, and attempts at explanations that make no sense. Adams freely admits that his theory is incomplete. He confesses that despite many gruelling hours of research, he has been unable to discern the exact identities of the person who may have acted as Rosalie, or of Madame Z. He does present several interesting candidates in his book, however, none of them are conclusive. The Rosalie case is extremely frustrating, and one gets this sense most strongly from the man himself. By the time of his death, Price was still haunted by the case that he could not explain. A sceptic, he truly wanted to do right by his research and not unduly dismiss a case simply because it was unbelievable. Rosalie, it can be said, was, for Price, the one that got away. Ultimately, both the paranormal and the normal explanations for the Rosalie case stretch our ability to suspend disbelief. In one instance, the spirit of a child manifests in perfect, full human form, with regularity in a seemingly ordinary home environment for an outsider to observe with relative ease. In the other, there was a collaborative effort from multiple parties, Harry Price and Joan Mortimer included, to disfigure the narrative to such a degree that the convolutions and concealments were either ridiculous, such as the suggestion that a nude 30-year-old woman was mistaken for a six-year-old girl, or entirely unnecessary. If Price felt he needed to change the description of the external appearance of the house so as to preserve the identity of the sitters, why extend this same level of editing to the interior? 
If we are to question details given in his report to this degree, then what is to stop us, like Eric Dingwall, from dismissing the legitimacy of the entire case? Of course, it is difficult to do so, and indeed does not seem to be the solution to this strange happening. However, it does highlight the difficulty of drawing solid conclusions. There are simply too many pieces of the puzzle still missing, and indeed, too many allowances that have to be made to make any of the proposed explanations fit. So, was it all a hoax? Is it possible for the spirit of a child to materialise during a seance? I'm behind you. I am 